Brothers, would you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah, chapter 6. Before we, before we read God's Word, let me say how uh, humbled and thankful I am to have the privilege of opening God's Word to you. Now you're all awake. Um, uh, um, I've sat at the feet of many of you and been blessed by your ministries here. I wanted to say uh, to you that I first came here when I was serving in London at a time in my own ministry when things were extremely difficult and painful. And as I look back now on the impact of this fellowship on on me in that period of my own ministry, I think that Twin Lakes being such an oasis for me was one of the means the Lord has used to keep me in ministry. I'm not sure I would be here preaching the Word of God were it not for this fellowship and your love and all that you have meant to me in the ministry of the Word here and the singing of God's praise. So it's an awesome thing to me to be standing before you and opening God's Word. So, with that said, let's turn our attention, please, to Isaiah chapter 6. This is now the inerrant Word of the living God. Let us give careful attention to the reading of Holy Scripture. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. 
keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Amen. And we give praise to God that He has spoken to us in His holy and authoritative words. Well, please keep your Bibles open at Isaiah 6. It is, of course, one of the great paradigmatic texts to which we, we turn again and again whenever we think about the holiness of God and what happens when sinful creatures encounter the Lord, high and lifted up. It is a passage, I think, of particular interest for us as preachers of the gospel, as elders, church planters, missionaries, because whatever else Isaiah was, he was a preacher. Perhaps we might even say he was the greatest of the Old Testament preaching prophets, perhaps barring John the Baptist, heralding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with an unrivaled clarity and beauty and power. So here we get to see not just what happens when creatures encounter their Creator, not just the interface of holiness with helplessness, sinless deity with sinful humanity, here we get to see what happens when a preacher is brought to meet afresh with his God. The passage, if you look at it, has two obvious enough divisions. In the first, the Lord deals with Isaiah the prophet himself. In the second, from about verse 8 onwards, the Lord commissions him to be his agent in ministering to others. We're going to focus our attention this morning on the first half of the passage, but I do want you to notice before we do that that the themes that so humble and change Isaiah here are the very same themes that are to become the burden of his message for God's people in 8 to 13 and indeed for the rest of the book of Isaiah. The judgment and the mercy of God, the reign of God in glory, and the reign of God in grace. Those are the great themes that put Isaiah in the dust and bring him to renewal and cleansing. And it's those same, those same themes he is sent to preach to others. God will judge, but a remnant will remain. From whom shall come the holy seed, Emmanuel, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the servant of the Lord's, 
our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The point, as I'm sure you see, is that the experience of Isaiah here in chapter 6 provides the template for the hope of the whole people of God in the rest of the book. That which Isaiah needs, they need also. The message the preacher is given for others is the message the preacher needs himself. So I want us to think together about these two great themes, the glory of God and the grace of God, as we find them here in the opening seven or eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. Let's think first about the glory of God. The prophet's vision takes place, notice, in the year that King Isaiah died. The account of Isaiah's reign is recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 26, and it is remarkable, really, for three things. First, it's remarkable for the godliness in which it began. The chronicler tells us, quote, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Isaiah's reign began well. Then secondly, his reign was remarkable for the prosperity in which it progressed. God helped him in his wars with the Philistines and the Arabians. Ammonites were told, paid him tribute. His reputation spread to the borders of Egypt. The army grew and was well equipped. He built cisterns in the wilderness. He, he, he loved the land and it flourished under his wise care. It seems like King Uzziah was leading the people to an age almost of messianic blessing and fruitfulness. But then, thirdly, Uzziah's reign was remarkable for the catastrophic failure in which it ended. Second uh, Chronicles 26 and verse 16, when he grew strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He arrogated to himself a role belonging only to the priesthood. Isaiah was not, after all, the messianic figure that his reign suggested that he might be. He was not the one to combine the offices of priest and king. That one was still to come. And in his arrogance, he fell under the judgment of God and was thrust from the temple immediately as leprosy broke out on his forehead, rendering him not only spiritually, but now also ritually unclean. And so in Second Chronicles 26:21, we're told King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. So King Isaiah's latter reign was a potent symbol of promise unfulfilled, of unrealized hope, of expectations crushed, of compromise and defeat, 
of moral and spiritual decline. If you read over the opening five chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah, you'll see that the condition of the people of Judah at the time of Isaiah's ministry has kept pace with that moral and spiritual decline in their leader. As the king fell, so it seems did the people. And along with that moral decline, there is also the ascent of the enemies of the people of God, the rise of the Assyrian Empire, now threatening uh, the northern and southern kingdoms. So with the death of the king, here in the opening verse of the chapter, we're meant to see the judgment of God now reaching its high water mark. Things could not look more bleak. The enemy is coming. The king is dead, a leper, unclean, shut out from the community of the people of God, dying under the judgment of God, and the people of Israel are in moral and spiritual and societal disarray. And it is against this backdrop of, of uh, no doubt of confusion and concern and heartbreak even, over the condition of the people of Israel that we find the prophet here in the temple seeking the the Lord and hear that he has his great vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. As As an undergraduate, I studied fine art. One of the hardest things to do as an artist, especially if your work is representational, is to get objectivity. You know, you you become so engrossed in the production of the work that you are no longer able really to see it clearly. You miss mistakes, you overlook distortions, you overemphasize the wrong lines and so on. One of the tricks that I would sometimes use to try and get some objectivity again, was to look at the work in a mirror. Just seeing it mirrored back, you got to see, um, you got to see it with just enough difference to provide renewed and restored objectivity. The asymmetry might be unveiled, the imbalances and the distortions become clear again. Brothers, some of us are here this morning in need of fresh perspective. Perhaps we're discouraged. Um, The enormity of the moral and the spiritual need around us seems to us just overwhelming. Perhaps we feel the inadequacy of our own resources for the task that has been laid upon us by our Savior. Some of us, frankly, feel defeat by the just the, the, the weight of the pastoral challenges that we are called upon to address. We need a, a new perspective. Here is Isaiah the prophet in the temple, seeking God in the year that King Isaiah died, seeking a, a fresh perspective, trying to, to see things again with clarity, a restored objectivity, if you like, as he avails himself of the means of grace as they then were, And in his infinite mercy, the Lord held up before him the mirror of his own glory. 
And Isaiah was enabled to see himself and his ministry in the light of God's character in a way that both humbled him and renewed him. And isn't that what we most urgently need? Not in the first place more tools for the job, but a renewed meeting with the God of glory and grace. Isn't that what we most urgently need? Because, brothers, in the end, haven't we come to the discovery, as Isaiah does here, that actually the biggest problem that we face in ministry does not lie out there in our contexts at all. The biggest problem for for the prophet at this point in his ministry is not that King Isaiah has died or that Judah is in disarray. The problem is not out there. The problem, the problem is in here. It is that Isaiah called as he was to be the spokesman and agent of the thrice holy God, proclaiming a message of judgment and grace, is himself a wretched sinner facing judgment and in need of grace. Our biggest problem in ministry is dealing with our own hearts. And so Isaiah views himself and his work here, or is made to view himself and his work here in the mirror of God's glory. And he's given a, a fresh perspective. He's helped to see that the sin and error that had otherwise gone unnoticed in his own heart is really lurking in all of those dark recesses and corners. He's shown the King, the Lord of hosts, seated on his throne, high and lifted up, with the heavenly court assembled around him. The abysmal failure of King Uzziah is placed in a wider context. The the prophet is helped to see the discouraging prospects and the dangers lurking on the horizons and the compromises of his people and even his own sinfulness and inadequacy against the backdrop of the overarching, comprehensive sovereignty of the Lord his God, he's helped to remember that the Lord reigns. Who could ever continue in ministry that did not keep hold of that truth? The Lord reigns. The Lord is on the throne. And only because that is so, Can any of us have confidence that our ministries might ever bear fruit? Our own weakness and sin and the weakness and sin of our hearers notwithstanding. The Lord reigns. Praise God. The Lord reigns. He's on the throne. But Isaiah does not praise God here, does he? Look at the details of the vision with me just for a moment. Notice notice Isaiah doesn't describe God. He tells us, He saw the insignia of lordship, the throne, the train of his robe filling the temple, the heavenly courts. One imagines the the furnishings of the temple around him fading from his view as their heavenly archetype, the throne room of God himself now floods his vision. And it's the regalia of glory, the, the paraphernalia of royalty, There are the details that impress themselves on his memory and that 
he records here. Perhaps they're the only things he feels he has language for. The only things he, he can find words to talk to us about. And there is a, a wave of response notice uh, to the majesty of the sovereign Lord revealed, moving outward from the epicenter around the throne, sweeping up and engulfing uh, three, three dimensions of the created order. First, there is the response of unfallen creation. Isaiah says there were six-winged seraphim standing above the Lord. And look at what they're doing. They cover themselves, their faces and their feet as they fly. And they sing, perhaps antiphonally, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, a seraph, as you know, is, a, is literally a burning one. These are angelic beings of blazing, unfallen, uncorrupted purity. They shine incandescent with native holiness. And even they must veil their faces before the Lord of hosts. For all their intrinsic brilliance and the fire of their own sinless natures, they dare not gaze upon the one who is a consuming fire. They cover their feet for even for such as they, this is holy grounds. The great theme of their song celebrates the transcendent majesty of the holiness of God. The holiness of God takes even their breath away. The holiness of God makes even seraphim sing. These are burning, shining, blazing creatures of glory. And even they cannot look into the white hot holiness of the Lord their God. Holy is what they're singing. Holy, holy, holy. It means, you remember, it means separate. G.I. Packer says it describes, quote, everything that sets him apart from us, making him different. Everything that sets him above us, making him worshipful and awesome. And everything that sets him against us, making him an object of actual terror. God is holy. He is other. And the, the repetition that we find there in the angel's song is a way of providing emphasis, although uniquely only here in the Hebrew Bible do we find this threefold uh, repetition. Holy, holy, holy. The seraphim you see are singing and celebrating and adoring God, not because he is a greater version of something they themselves participate in. They do not worship God because he stands at the far end of a, of a continuum of being. You know, animals and fish and birds and then human beings and then angels and then deity at the far end of the, of the spectrum. No, they, they adore God because He is holy, holy, holy. He is uniquely holy. He is separate. He is other even than they. He is sui generis. He stands in a category of one. He is the Lord and there is no other. The holiness of these burning angelic figures is a a reflected glory, an echo, a mimic 
of the holiness of God, but God's glory is superlative and incomparable and unique. The angels are saying God is holy, holier, holiest of all. None other can compare to him. And they tell us the whole earth is full of his glory. The world is the theater for the display of his holiness. That's what glory is. Dr. Kelly so helpfully last night was reminding us that glory is the weight of the beauty of God impressing itself upon creation. It is the transcendent majesty and moral purity and spotless sovereignty of the triune God displayed. Glory is the godness of God shining out towards the world that all creatures on earth might join the heavenly anthems and bow down and adore him. The response of unfallen creation and as though to demonstrate the truth of the, at least the second part of the angel's song, that the whole earth is full of his glory. There's the response, secondly, of inanimate creation. Verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook. The voice of him who called in the house was filled with smoke. The temple begins to shake at the presence of God. Smoke fills the room. The elements reverberate in echo to the worship of heaven. The, the rumble of an earthquake provides the percussion for the angelic hymn. The glory, glory cloud of God's presence that hovered over the tabernacle now fills the temple and it obscures the prophet's view. The response of unfallen creation, of inanimate creation, but there's also the response of fallen creation. There's the response of the prophet himself. Isaiah is not caught up in adoration. Heaven and earth here are reverberating in praise. But not Isaiah. He's unable to join the seraph's song. In fact, he has excluded the trembling foundations of the thresholds. Prevent him from entering. And the, the smoke that fills the temple obscures his vision. He's being shut out. Excluded thrust out from the presence of God. Verse 5 tells us why. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice the message Isaiah has been preaching to others in chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. Chapter 5 and verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, 
who draw sin as with cart ropes. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Woe to you. He's, he's been saying to God's people, woe to you, people of God, for your sin. But now as the preacher is confronted with the Lord his God, he is made to say, woe to me. The chilling realization dawns upon him that the message he has been faithfully proclaiming to others is a message under which he also now must sit for himself. Woe to me. How we need to learn, brothers, how we need to learn from the experience of the prophet that whatever ministry the Lord has given to us in preaching his word to others, we must always also be subject to the ministry of that same word ourselves. As uh, I think it was John Piper, wasn't it, that entitled one of his books, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. Isn't that the hallmark of a professional? They, they dish out rebukes. They apply the word to others. But they are deaf to the ways that same word addresses them. There is a moment of chilling realization for Isaiah. Ice runs down his spine. And he gets it at last. And he says, woe to me. I am lost. The word lost there comes from a a root that means silenced with the silence of death. It's the silence of the grave. The silence of one who meets his end. There is no justification by ministry for Isaiah. He knows he cannot claim righteousness by virtue of his office. His ministry is no refuge. Now he has no words. He's struck dumb. He's left stripped of language and he realizes that the holiness of God is inimical to sinners even if they can claim to be the prophet of the Lord. Uh, a dear friend of mine who was a preacher, a faithful preacher of the gospel, a man who had begun to exercise a growing ministry of widening influence in the United Kingdom fell into an adulterous relationship. His marriage was destroyed. His ministry was ruined. His reputation left in tatters. And I will, I will never forget his account of the reason for his fall. I asked him what had happened. He said, David, I stopped fearing God. I stopped fearing God. He allowed his public ministry to delude him into thinking himself immune from the very dangers he sought to warn others of. He began to think of himself safe and secure by virtue of his office. 
the praise of men and the affirmation of his peers began to matter more than the well-done, good and faithful servant of his master. He lost sight of the glory of God and he stopped fearing the Lord. We always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy, says Calvin. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs, and as you remember the opening sections of the Institutes, the proof he has in mind is gaining knowledge of ourselves in light of a true knowledge of God. Seeing God helps us see ourselves. We, we always think we are righteous and upright and holy and wise, this pride is innate in all of us unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly and impurity. For because all of us are inclined by nature to hypocrisy, a kind of empty image of righteousness in place of righteousness itself abundantly satisfies us. How easy to use our ministries as a kind of empty image of righteousness in place of righteousness itself and be satisfied with that. How easy, how easy to labor at calling others to fear the Lord and to stop fearing Him ourselves. Isaiah here sees the Lord and in His light he saw His sin. He came to know Himself and he is cut to the heart. Look at the particular contours of his besetting sin. As he confesses it to us, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Unclean, of course, remember, was the condition under which King Uzziah died. A leper struck down by God for his pride in thinking himself free to manhandle holy things. And the prophet Isaiah has been pointing out that the uncleanness of the king has spread to the people. But here at last he sees the same uncleanness that had contaminated the king and the people pollutes his own soul as well. Notice especially it is in the very area where he has been equipped to serve God that his own besetting sin is located. He is a man of unclean lips. His sins were sins of speech. Like the king who desecrated the altar of incense, Isaiah has desecrated the sacred ministry of the word by sharing in the uncleanness of speech that had been characteristic of the people among whom he had lived. Speech that is vulgar, spiteful, slanderous, pompous, self-congratulatory. That's the kind of speech we, we expect to find in a world of rebels against the reign of God. But there is no incarnational analogy for ministry that can validate that kind of speech on the lips of the servants of God. Isaiah says, now I see I'm called to be set apart and holy and different. My words are to be God's words, not the unclean speech 
of a world shaking its fist in the face of its maker. So Isaiah is laid in the dust before God, deeply convicted of his sin, despairing, actually despairing of life, let alone ministry, owning his sin in all its true dimensions. No excuses, no pretense, no cover-up. He's been exposed and he pours out his confession. And, and yet as painful as that no doubt was, it was necessary to his further use, usefulness. Praise God there is still further usefulness, right? For someone in Isaiah's condition, confronted by the holiness of God, seeing the uncleanness of his heart. Brothers, aren't you thankful that when God exposes your sin, there may yet still be further usefulness? As you come broken, repentant, confessing, and clinging to grace. Only when Isaiah was in the dust, no longer on the throne, when the God of glory is acknowledged in his true majesty, only then when he sees his heart in its own true bankruptcy, is he usable at last. What right do we have? to expect fruitfulness for our ministries if that arrangement is ever inverted. If we're on the throne and God is at our feet as our servants and puppet, if his message has become to us a message of self-aggrandizement rather than Christ's exaltation, we may well attract a crowd but we will not build the church. The the glory of God is what confronts the prophet and confronts us in this passage. But there is also grace, wonderful grace. God is not done with Isaiah yet. He is not done with us. Look at what happens next. He is no doubt cowering in terror, awaiting the judgment he feels sure is about to come when he sees one of these burning ones, these, these seraphim with a live coal, speeding towards him. Will this now be the destruction I have been expecting? Was he braced for agony as the coal touched his lips? When uh, I was growing up in, in Scotland on a cold morning, there was nothing... Um, more pleasurable to me than a, than a hot bridey. A bridey is a kind of meat pie. And you get these things steaming hot and I know it's going to burn my mouth but I can't resist and I, every time I, I bite into it and my mouth is just scalded and it's agony. I mean, have you ever burnt your mouth? It's not fun, right? This is like a torture scene. A live coal pressed against the prophet's mouth. But instead of searing pain, Isaiah is cleansed. Alec Motir, in his, uh, his commentary on this, points out that in the Hebrew Scriptures, fire is not an image of cleansing. It's an image of judgment. It's used for the holiness of God. The unapproachable holiness of God that burns against sin. So why isn't the prophet consumed by the fire of holiness pressed here directly to the area where he has confessed his besetting sin? 
Why is it that instead of wrath, there's mercy? Instead of destruction, there's atonement? This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Why? The answer is the coal has come from the altar where the demands of holiness are satisfied. Sacrifice for sin has been provided. It's been suggested, actually, that the smoke that filled the temple in verse 4 at the beginning of the vision was the result of a sacrifice already placed on the altar. Provision made for Isaiah before Isaiah fully realized how much he needed it. What a picture of the gospel that is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before ever we knew how dire our condition was, God has made provision to make us clean. Jesus' blood is the propitiation for our sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God to purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. John 12 that we read earlier at verse 41 tells us the Lord of glory that Isaiah saw was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Here, at least for me, here is the wonder of this great text. That the majesty of the one over whom the angels sing in astonished wonder is the, is the very one whose blood was poured out on the altar for our salvation. The thrice holy God whose exalted glory lays us in the dust is the Lord Jesus Christ who laid aside His glory and was himself brought down to the dust of utter humiliation, becoming obedient even to the death of the cross to secure our deliverance and pardon. Let me ask you as you preach the gospel to others, as I ask myself, have you stopped resting in it yourself? I think we are being called back in this passage again to the cross of Christ where there is sufficient provision to make us clean. To cleanse our consciences from dead works that we may serve the living God. That's what happened to the prophet here, isn't it? He's only opened his mouth until now in confession of sin to express his despair. He's been excluded from the heavenly court by his sin. He's been unable to participate in the angelic choir. He has been silenced by his guilt before God. But now, now that the coal from the altar of Christ's atoning work has been applied to him, now that his conscience has been cleansed from dead works, He's ready to serve the living God. Here am I. Send me. If we are going to leave here this week with a renewed sense of our commission and calling, it must come as a result of our honest dealing with God over the besetting sins of our hearts. It must come 
as our live coal from Christ's altar is applied to us. Praise God that he has made full provision for us all in Jesus Christ. That his blood can make the foulest clean. That no one in this room need ever go on with a conscience searing and condemning them. Not another moment, not another moment with a condemning conscience if you will flee to Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus can make us clean. What we must do is what Isaiah does here. We must humble ourselves under his mighty hand, knowing that in due time he will lift us up. May the Lord grant us all grace that we may deal honestly with the God of glory so that the message we preach to others might bear fruit in our own hearts first. Amen. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we praise you. We praise you and tremble that you are the holy, holy, holy Lord, God Almighty, the whole earth, full of your glory. Oh, have mercy on us for having preached to others with hard hearts impervious to the very message we find ourselves proclaiming. Under the hammer blows of the gospel of grace, would you break our hard hearts and apply the healing balm of Christ's redeeming blood For we ask it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.